CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have everybody with us again for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're going to do a mixture of politics, coronavirus, and a few other topics on the show today. Um, And so I appreciate you're all uh, spending another hour with us as we talk about the big stories in the news. Uh, Great panel. Greg Bluestein, who I always call the lead political reporter for the AJC, uh, the paper doesn't call him that, and his colleagues may sometimes not like that, but the fact of the matter is his byline appears more frequently than just about anybody else in the paper. Although, Greg Bluestein, where have you been the last few days? Your output seems to have slowed. What's going on with you? <laughs> I took a couple of days off. <laughs> and uh, Oh, my God. Yeah. You t- I didn't I think you How ever took days off. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping to take some more off over Memorial Day weekend, so we'll see. Good for you. Good for you. Um, Well, you have a new story that we're going to talk about in a little while. You just posted it earlier this morning on uh, AJC.com, and and you've got the figures uh, of a new poll that tells us some, gives us some information about the U.S. Senate races in Georgia, but we'll hold off and get to that a little bit later in the show. Patricia Murphy is back with us. She is a uh, syndicated columnist whose uh, columns have appeared in Roll Call She's now writing for USA Today, and Patricia had a career on Capitol Hill before um, really uh, plunging into journalism full-time, working for Max Cleland, and before that, the great Sam Nunn. Patricia, you continue to shelter in place at home with your little kids. How is that going for you? You know, you I get to see you because we're looking at each other on WebEx, and I don't notice that you've uh, aged appreciably and being home with the kids all day, every day. <laughs> the, the, the deterioration is on the inside, Bill, not the outside so far. <laughs> but today's the last day of school, and it's the I don't know if I'm excited or scared because now we just have a big summer of nothing. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, but thank you. Yeah, yeah we'll, check, yeah, we'll check back in with you on that, with you too. Uh, Greg Bustein, find out how you're going to deal with uh, the very same thing with your girls. Adam Van Brimmer joins us. He's the editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News with us from Savannah. How you doing, Adam? Hi, Bill. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. Um, I'm doing pretty well, too. Um, and uh, we're going to get to you throughout the show, but uh, you're really keeping track down your way at the Ahmad Arbery Case and uh, I know you've got some information you're going to share with us about that. Yeah. But let, yeah, if, if we may, yeah, let's start with um, the latest in COVID nineteen. Greg Bluestein, uh, Governor Kemp's office, uh, the other day put out a rather celebratory uh, news release uh, for good reason. Uh, they uh, announced that hospitalizations for COVID nineteen have dropped by a third in the last two weeks in Georgia. Uh, AJC did an analysis of the data published by the Georgia Emergency Management and Homeland Security Agency and came up with that number. And the governor's office celebrated it, saying uh, it was the lowest number of patients hospitalized since hospitals started reporting data to GEMA 
on April 8th. Uh, so all in all, Greg, that's a very positive sign for the state right now. But it comes with the caution that there are still hot spots in the state up there in the Gainesville area. And we're still waiting to see what kind of surge could happen uh, after businesses began opening. Greg? You're exactly right. Um, and, and public health experts keep on warning, as, as do some state officials, that we're far from you know, out of the clear, in the clear yet, um, that data is still coming in and that a lot of these uh, you know, uh, potential new outbreaks still might not be showing up in the state's data because it takes long to get test back results. And then, of course, some of the state's data is backdated to when people first started seeing symptoms. So it's still difficult to tell exactly where we are. Um, we have seen um, you know, the, the rate of, of in, uh, coronavirus increases slow, but we're also not sure if that is a uh, you know, sort of a temporary mark, or if, if in a few weeks we'll see that there was a surge or a marked decrease um, in cases after the state started reopening in the economy. Yeah. You know, Patricia, I, I one of the things that I've learned over the last 10-plus weeks is at, when this began developing, when coronavirus really hit, when COVID-19 started uh, coming into the state, I was looking at data from the public health uh, commissioner, looking at, at the models coming from the various uh, sources out there, Washington, University of Washington uh, as one that everybody was paying attention to. And it seemed early on, and on this show, we would talk about that data as if it was really a, a precise measure that we could all rely on and was telling us where we were and where we were headed. I think, Patricia, one of the things we've learned throughout the week since then is that the data are very difficult to understand and aren't necessarily particularly strong predictors at a given moment about what's happening. In other words, we're all still operating somewhat in the dark, Patricia. Well, I think we're operating in the dark uh, because uh, of many factors. For one, it's just a very new disease, and uh, we're still learning about the disease. And also a number of these models, um, you know, it's almost not unlike political polling. They're predictive. Um, or I'm sorry, these are predictive. Uh, and it's based on if behavior changes a little, if it changes a lot, if we shelter in place, if people are wearing masks. So um, I think the good news is that people have taken extraordinary steps um, based on the science to slow the spread, and as they said, bend the curve. Um, and I think people should be really congratulated for that. And it certainly is, seems to have been and is being successful. But all you have to do is talk to people and they say, I, I don't really know what to do next. I don't know what's safe. I don't know. Um, because I think the models have changed. The data has changed. We're learning more about the virus. We're still, I think, um, uh, in a macro and micro sense, operating with a lot of unknowns. And uh, it's it's very clear, though, that we're not getting back to 100%, um, you know, full bore participation in the economy or schools or anything until we know more about uh, what's happening. And, and it really is that uncertainty which is preventing, uh, I think, people from going out and really engaging in in the economy again with businesses. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But Adam, before I uh, turn to you on this, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, was on MSNBC. 
She was asked about her take on the fact that cases seem to be slowing down in Georgia. Here's what she had to say. It's not as bad as I thought that it would be, so I am pleased about that, but I still think it's too soon to say. The reason being, whereas initially we were seeing increases between deaths and people testing positive, rising anywhere from 25 to 30 percent over a seven-day period, right now we're somewhere between 12 and 15 percent. And so it's better than it was, but it's still not great. We've still not seen that 14-day decline as recommended by the CDC. So we're not quite there where I can say um, that we are out of the woods. Um, Adam, your mayor in Savannah, and Johnson, has been very concerned about the state opening up when um, Governor Kemp decided it was time to get businesses up and running again. How are things going in Savannah in that respect? Have you heard from him on this subject uh, since businesses started reopening? But more important, are businesses opening down that way? Are people getting out into the world again? Yes, on all counts. Uh, Mayor Johnson is is very proactive in terms of communicating with the public and communicating with the media. In terms of businesses here in this area, yes, they are back operating. And quite frankly, the local population has – has embraced, I guess might not be the right word, but certainly the reopening is, is everybody seems to be pretty eager to re-engage. And uh, there are certain places you go, particularly the beach last weekend was the, the local officials at, at Tyvee said it was, in terms of car count, was like a holiday weekend. And uh, I know I did a little exploring by boat over the weekend and the beaches that you can only reach by boat. One of them was so crowded that there wasn't any place to park the boat. People were happy to basically drift offshore until somebody left. So people don't seem too shy about social distancing around here. The mayor remains concerned. The city is giving out some some masks to people that need them. Uh, The city has instituted a program where local businesses basically agree to, to really take safety seriously and sanitize and do the social distancing. And it's you participate in that program, you get a little sticker to put in your window. In less than a week, 500 local businesses have signed up for that, so that's a good sign. Wow. But, you know, you look at our numbers, and we're bumping along here. I mean, it, we're, we, we never – we haven't had an outbreak, and, and so that's a good thing. But our numbers are not necessarily declining. Uh, they're just – they're kind of bumping along. I think everybody's really curious to see – uh, you know, in the next two weeks, if we see a if we see a surge, or if we continue to bump along, or if we see a drop. Uh, Greg, the uh, a listener sent to me yesterday an article, an op-ed piece from uh, the L.A. Times uh, by Matthew Fleischer, who is the paper's senior digital editor, and uh, he was he had very harsh criticism for the way in which uh, Georgia opened up again. And uh, the uh, headline for his column was, Georgia's coronavirus data made reopening look safe. The numbers were a lie. And he's talking about some confusion in the public health uh, numbers that were released, uh, and which, the, which, which the governor's office sort of kind of apologized for, said, look, we're still, there are problems here and there. We're working to correct them. And Dana Milbank in Washington Post also went after the state of Georgia for the same thing, saying they're manipulating data to make it appear that it's safe to open. I'm not sure. You know, Greg, to some extent, this reminds me of the way the national press 
uh, picked up on voter suppression here. Uh, they had some point to make about some of that, but uh, we here who are reporting in the state have a little bit different uh, perspective on it all. I, I, Greg, do we really believe that anyone thinks that the commissioner of public health and the governor's office wanted to manipulate data intentionally to mislead us? That, that If that's true, that's an astonishing charge. Yeah, we've got a different sort of story there, if that's the case. I mean, what we're seeing is not widespread. We've, we've seen kind of secondary graphs, um, a secondary graph uh, that was the, the, that had a wrong x-axis, and AJC reported extensively about two other mistakes that the state public health department data made. There was another mistake over the weekend, but we're not seeing widespread, um, it looks like purposeful manipulation. And I think there's there's a lot of attention now in Florida because the, um, the the operator of the Florida public health website has come out and publicly criticized the governor's office there uh, for doing what she says is that attempt to manipulate the data and conceal data. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot more attention in, in all states about whether or not that's happening. But we don't have evidence of that, of a widespread effort in Georgia like that. But I've certainly seen how columnists have picked up and taken some of those anecdotes and used it to portray that. I don't think there's any question, though, again, to return to this, Adam, that the way the data has been presented is terribly confusing. And we've said Mm -hmm. on this show before that if early on the governor's office was um, in, in some way responsible for confusion, it was that their early communication efforts on what was happening in Georgia just didn't feel like they were as candid, as clear, as transparent as they could have been. And I think it comes back, uh, Adam, to haunt them when we see these uh, problems with some of the data and the way it's presented. Yeah, confusing is one word for it, Bill. I could think of some others, but it's it's one of these things that, especially when it comes to localized numbers, it's really it's really hard. You know, they've got different groups collecting these numbers and different groups pushing out these numbers. You, you got the emergency management agencies collecting numbers from hospitals, and and then you have um, you have the Department of Health trying to do what what they're trying to do and manage the numbers, and then we release certain numbers or the hospitalization numbers are not coming directly out of the hospital, or if they are, it's at least here in this area where so many different counties feed into our hospital, it's hard to get a grasp for where exactly the the outbreak is coming. And yeah, I, the numbers, and then you've got collection, did they collect the demographics? Uh, one thing that we have a big problem with here is the state keeps talking about nursing homes and how prevalent it is in nursing homes, whereas here we haven't had that. So when people hear that statewide, something like 40% of the cases are nursing home cases, and then you think that that's the case here, and that maybe it's maybe it's confined to nursing homes, so we're safe to go out, and that's just that's not the case here. And it really, hopefully, it is a lesson learned out of this whole situation going forward, is to have a a much more firm plan on what numbers need to be collected, how we get them to the public, and how often. So, Patricia, if you don't mind, I'd like to personalize this just a little bit. Um, we know that businesses have tried to open. There are restaurants that have opened, uh, hair salons, barbershops. You know, we know about businesses that are now trying to get back to uh, uh, have a customer base. But let me ask you, Patricia, 
what ha- what's going on in your family? Are, do you, are you? I mean, are you going to the supermarket? Are you having groceries delivered? Are you starting to kind of dip your toe in the water of commerce again, slowly uh, patronizing other businesses? Tell me a little bit about the feelings at your house right now, if if you don't mind. Oh yeah, of course. Well, I would <laughs> say my feelings are heavily influenced by mm. the fact that I have two small children and two parents and they uh, I'll say they're above 65. <laughs> they not want me to say how old they are. Um, Very to, diplomatic. Exactly. <laughs> um, I just don't want to take a chance. So I do still have my um, groceries delivered. Um, I, if I, I think I've been to a grocery store once in the last, since this all happened. Um, and I wore a mask and gloves. Um, I found uh, most people in the grocery store and Publix were also wearing masks and gloves. Now, I also live in Atlanta. I think that's, that may be different outside of Atlanta. Um, but for me, I, we're just not taking any risks that we just don't have to take right now. So we're still at home riding our bikes, social distancing, um, and trying to uh, really keep an, a very close eye on how it could potentially affect my parents. Um, we see them um, from their yard. Uh, and, you know, I think if I was single, if I was running a business, I might uh, feel differently. I certainly am very sympathetic to people running these businesses. But um, we're taking really as few risks as necessary until we know more about what's happening. Greg, what's happening in your family? <laughs> I don't know. No, um, it's. <laughs> It's been, a, it's been a unique adventure. I feel like we're, we're getting the hang of it now. Um, uh, we're going through a lot, though. Um, the kids' school ended last week. Camp got canceled for the summer. So we're readjusting to what this summer means, a wide-open summer, as Patricia just said, for our children. Um, we made the decision pretty early on to quarantine, T-E-A-M, with um, a couple of other families. So the kids have had some interaction with, with some neighbors um, so they're, I feel like they're getting a good social outlet, and then, and then we are too. That we're still social distancing um, from from them, but they're at least allowed to play with them. My mom comes over and hangs out on our driveway at a social distance um, because she's in that age group that's that's I guess considered medically fragile. So are my in-laws. So we've gone over to their homes, but kind of like had the kids kind of run around on the on the sidewalk and chalk up the driveway while, while we're talking with um, my wife's parents. Um, and we're just getting out a lot um, around the neighborhood. I mean, I mean, we always had a tight-knit neighborhood, but we're spending a lot of time with our neighbors, bike riding, running around. I have a bike crew. I didn't even own a bike a few weeks ago. And now a group of about a dozen guys meets around on my driveway pretty much every day to go on a 10 or 12-mile bike ride. So that's been a unique um occurrence with this that I never imagined I'd be biking all over the streets of Dunwoody, but here I am. All right. Um, by the way, Bluestein, I know your mother. Uh, she's the toughest person. She, nobody's going to stop her from doing what she wants to do during no, the uh, virus. I, I know that. Hey, Adam, uh, I was surprised. I've been out almost not at all. Uh, we have our groceries delivered. Um, we've used Amazon more than I can ever have imagined I would, and I'm beginning to enjoy it very much for all sorts of things. Um, but I did have to go out yesterday to a UPS store, and it was my one of my brief excursions away from the house. And I was, and my wife had a similar experience, 
uh, when she went out yesterday, stunned by the number of people who don't wear masks, who don't understand social distancing. My wife went into a little grocery store in our neighborhood, which is a wonderful store, and it's kept their supply chain alive, and so we're able to get just about everything we need there. And she ran into, saw a doctor wearing a stethoscope around his neck, a lab coat, uh, not wearing a mask, not social distancing, and she was kind of stunned. And it leads, Adam, to this sense that for, for all of us, this is the most surreal experience we've ever had in our lives. But for a good number of people out there, it's a surreal experience that they seem to think isn't going to have an impact on them. Yeah, my wife works in a grocery store. So ever since this whole thing went down, she's had a front, uh, you know, a front row seat. And it is kind of amazing that early on there were a lot of people wearing masks especially when the when the grocery store basically started requiring all the employees to wear masks most of the customers wear masks and over time you're seeing fewer and fewer and fewer people wearing masks and i live in a what i guess would be considered a suburban area of um, savannah about 25,000 people on this on this island and everybody on the island pretty much uses the same 12 stores and you go in these stores now and they're all crowded and they're not many people wearing masks and there might be marks on the floor at the hardware store for the six feet of dis- distance, but people aren't necessarily following it. And, you know, even the people that wear masks, if you start talking to them, they're going to pull that mask down that way, you know, they can be better understood. And it's like you said, it is very surreal and it's going to be, you know, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm really going to watch closely to see if we see a surge here in the next couple of weeks. All right. Well, I appreciate just uh, taking a few minutes to give you an opportunity, all of you, to tell us what your lives are like right now, because I think uh, I think people want to know how we're all getting through this and the common experiences we're having. So thank you for that. But we have a lot of political news to talk about. Uh, We have news about Ahmaud Arbery that I want to get to. So let's take a break right now and come back and continue looking at the news of the day. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy, um, Adam Van Brimmer, Greg Bluestein, all with me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Adam, let me go to you because it comes from your part of the state. Uh, Another video has surfaced in the Ahmaud Arbery uh, case, um, came out of nowhere like the first one did, and uh, it shows a troubling encounter between Arbery and, again, Glynn County Police, can you uh, help us understand what that video shows us? We've lost Adam for a moment. Um, Greg Bluestein, uh, are you there? Oh, Adam, yeah, go ahead. Now that we got back. you back. Yeah, that's because I had the mute button on my phone. See some technical <laughs> difficulties here. But uh, yeah, from what I understand, that the the video is is 
of Arbery sitting in his car in a park and appears to be minding his own business, but as the police were were basically doing their regular patrol, they became a little bit curious as to what exactly he was doing in his car and confronted him. And uh, he was um, not real, I don't think he was real keen to be what appears to be uh, being harassed. And basically what happened eventually was he got out of the car and the police uh, attempted to tase him. The taser failed, uh, Greg, is, is I think the next step of that. And, uh, and Arbery went, did uh, go on his way. But it is another troubling incident in this story about Ahmad Arbery. And we really are not sure what to make of it at, at all, except that we do know there's been this pattern over the years of Glynn County police and the behavior their behavior toward people in the African-American community, Greg. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was back in November of 2017 where this video was taken, and you can, you can clearly hear Arbery saying, you're bothering me for nothing. Um, he, was, he was upset that, that, as Adam said, he felt like he was minding his own business, and, and police in the report at least said that uh, this public park was, was a known area for drugs and other criminal activity, but it didn't appear they had any reason um, to suspect him of any of that, and, and he clearly was upset that they they seemed like they were targeting him. Patricia, um, how do you interpret when you when you hear about a second incident? I mean, the first video we saw tragically ends with his being shot to death, and now we learn of one where um, he was sitting in his car, and the police uh, essentially rousted him from his car and tried to tase him. Well, I think it raises a broader question um, of needing to know more really about um, the policies of the police department down there, along with the policies of the prosecutors. Um, Did they have, uh, was this habitual? Was um, Was this a policy that was frequent? Uh, was it, did it involve more than somebody like Ahmed Arbery? Um, I think it just begs a lot of questions. Is there a systemic, um, very serious problem happening uh, in Glynn County? Um, and certainly, uh, you, again, you just always have to go back and say, we only know about this because there was a video. How many other cases, yeah. either in this county, uh, this area, or the state, do we not know about? Um, I think it, it raises questions of a systemic problem that uh, I think probably should be investigated. Adam, uh, you've been doing a little looking into the personnel, the people who are going to be involved in uh, this trial, assuming that the grand jury does, in fact, uh, bring an indictment against uh, uh, in the case. Um, Tell us about the judge who's been assigned to the case, who I think was assigned only after at least three other judges recused themselves from from this matter. Yeah, we learned on Monday that Judge Timothy Wombley, who is a Superior Court judge here in Chatham County, has been appointed to preside over the case. Yes, all six, I may be butchering that number, it's either five or six of the Superior Court judges in the Brunswick Circuit recused themselves, and that's kind of understandable considering all of the the questions that people have in terms of 
surrounding the district attorney down there and also the Glen County Police Department. So it, it only made sense that those judges would, would step back and Judge Longley was appointed to preside over the case to handle all of the all of the motions, all of the regal processes. Uh, he will probably hear the case. I guess eventually he could appoint somebody else to, to sit and hear the trial itself if we get that far. But it's presumed that he would be the one to hear the case. And we we spent the last couple of days kind of catching up on Judge Longley. We have a number of Superior Court justices here. And uh, we've been kind of looking at his his case record. He has a history of of hearing major crimes cases, high profile major crimes cases, and has a reputation for being very measured, very fair. When things start to get a little heated in the courtroom, he's very good about kind of calming everything down, calling the necessary recesses, and basically acting as, as a mediator, as a judge should. And that I think bodes well for the, the future of this trial because or of, of this case because as we know it's going to be it's going to be pretty hot for until it's resolved. Yeah, I mean a case like this, Greg, is really gonna require a judge with steely nerves, I think, and someone who is as judicious as apparently Adam has learned uh, the judge who's been assigned to the case is uh, this is a this is not necessarily something you would welcome into your life. No, you talk about a headline grabbing case that will be analyzed. Every every witness, <laughs> every form of testimony will be highly scrutinized, and of course, every decision he'll he'll make. And as I mentioned, he has a long background um, on the bench, and he was previously a Chatham County magistrate. He was a partner in a law firm. Um, actually, he was a special specialist in commercial and real estate litigation. So this is a, a different animal for him, but certainly he is. Uh, it, it seems like he's prepared for this, um, and uh, maybe not the immediate attention he's about to get. But at least, at least the uh, the, the legal <laughs> grounding in what he's about to face. Uh, by the way, again, I want to uh, uh, say there has not. We don't know. I mean, there's a grand jury. The McMichaels have mm-hmm. not. We don't know that they'll be brought to trial. We assume, uh, based on what we know about the video and other evidence, we, we, we would. I think people would be shocked if if uh, charges aren't brought. But we'll just wait and watch how that uh, develops. One other aspect of this case that I think is interesting, Patricia, is that there's now a tug of war really going on uh, between the Arbery family. Uh, and um, and attorneys for William Bryan. William Bryan, I think William Roddy is his nickname. Bryan is the man who took the first who took the video of the shooting. He was in a vehicle following uh, the uh, the uh, car when uh, the McBrides were were chasing Arbery, and he may have ap- apparently blocked Arbery's from getting past them at one point. His attorney claims that he is an innocent bystander, that the Arbery's who want him arrested, that's a tug of war. The Arbery's are saying he should be arrested as an accomplice in this. Uh, and Brian's attorneys, though, are saying the attention that's been brought on him and his family is leading de- to death threats. And so there's another wrinkle in this case that we're going to have to watch unfold, Patricia. So absolutely, I think we um, probably need to know more about his role. And um, I don't believe that he uh, reported uh, this. I don't 
know exactly how his name came to light, but um, the, there have been accusations that he was trying to help block um, the way for Ahmad Abri to leave and to escape. Um, so I think there are just a number of questions about whether was he an accessory? Has he been cooperative? Um, obviously, uh, with his attorneys, uh, those answers may not be immediately forthcoming. Um, but certainly, uh, he does seem to be who we know the least about, um, but certainly played some sort of a role, because who would have this video? Um, just very clean, yeah clear, crisp video, um, and how did it come to light? I think more more questions need to be answered on that. Adam, do we know anything more about Roddy Bryan based on any reporting that's been done your down your way? Not that I've seen, but then we've been we've been focused on okay. some on some other factors. But yeah, it is it, it when you when you first saw that video you had to ask yourself, okay, what is this guy's connection because it, it's pretty clear that yeah. this wasn't somebody just driving by that caught it on video. He was actually following this, this whole activity. It's, it's quite, it's quite strange. All right, let's do this. Let's get another break out of the way. When we come back, we've got some campaign politics that we want to talk about. Um, you're listening to political rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, I want to pick up on a number of threads of the uh, campaign right now. Uh, First of all, Greg Bluestein, you posted in the AJC a new poll uh, that comes from, uh, I guess, how do you describe this this source? I mean, do we have a reason? This is an online poll, which makes it just a little bit uh, less uh, reliable. But it it was done by, and it was done by a left-leaning uh, organization, Daily Cause. So talk to us about the poll and what it shows with those caveats. Yeah, um, and the national polling outlets give it a pretty high mark. B is, is what 538 gave it yeah. um, last I checked. Um, but no, it shows um, it shows some, some, some challenges ahead for Republicans. Um, among in head-to-head matchups against David Perdue, um, John Ossoff was leading him within the margin of error, 47-45. Teresa Tomlinson was tied with him, and Sarah Riggs Amico was trailing 45-42, but that's, again, within the margin of error. So, so very close races in potential head-to-head matchups against, against Senator Perdue. And then in the, the other race, the wild special election with Kelly Leffler, um, Doug Collins is, is, has, a, has a clear advantage, at least in this poll in that race. Um, he's in the 30s, while every other candidate um, uh, is, is either in single digits or low double digits, including the incumbent Kelly Leffler. So again, points to, to to challenges she faces in sort of restoring and reviving her campaign and 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 shifting the message right now because uh, it's 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 tough. Um, he had 34 percent. Warnock had 18 percent. Lieberman, uh, Democrat Matt Lieberman, 14 percent, and Kelly Leffler at 12 percent. So um, some tough news there. And then and then this is the latest survey, and this is backed up by a series of Republican surveys too that show a very, very close race for president in Georgia. This one has Joe Biden at 48%, Trump at 
Trump at 47%. So essentially a tie between those two candidates as Democrats are racing to flip the state for the first time since 1992. Patricia, give us your thoughts when you hear those numbers. So, you know, I think that um, although Ossoff is performing the best against Senator Perdue, um, it seems to me that Teresa Tomlinson has the most growth potential here uh, because Ossoff spent $30 million on his race his, in the special election for the six. Um, and Teresa Tomlinson, uh, the former mayor of Columbus, is just a, is just two points behind him. We certainly um, are performing about two points worse than he is. Uh, and she has done, to this point, um, very little advertising. She's starting to get on the air. Um, I think people don't know her as well. And I think she has some potential there. Um, for Purdue, his, uh, what I was surprised about is that his uh, favorable, unfavorable ratings, um, he's uh, almost 10 points less favorable than Donald Trump. I thought he would be right up with Donald Trump. Donald Trump still has a 47% favorable rating in the state, according to this poll, um, making him just about the most popular politician in the state, which I found somewhat surprising. Um, But again, for Kelly Leffler, this is the second poll that she has uh, come in at 12%. And that has just got to be setting off red flag alarms because she's already spent um, about $10 million on this race. So uh, if, I, am I, if I'm waking up today to this news, I'm Doug Collins, and I feel fabulous. Everybody else feels okay, and Kelly Loeffler is like, oh, why did I say yes <laughs> to this? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know, one of the other things that I thought was interesting, though, Greg, about and this is going back to Senate race number one for a minute, mm-hmm. is that by a very small margin, I think it was by a small margin, uh, African-Americans prefer Ossoff to Tomlinson, uh, now, he did win the endorsement of John Lewis, and he's got a TV spot right now, which is probably pretty effective for encouraging African-Americans to support him, with uh, John Lewis uh, very uh, passionately endorsing him at a rally. Um, but Tomlinson has been racking up one African-American leadership endorsement after another, including Andy Young uh, and, and many others. Um mm-hmm. So I don't know what to make of those numbers. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and the sample size is, is, is obviously smaller than the overall sample size of about thirteen hundred voters that, yeah. that were um, that responded. But look, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, African American voters are the single most important voting block in a, in a Democratic primary in Georgia, um, and particularly African American women. Will, will, will end up deciding this race um, in a major way. And it showed that Ossoff was about, a poll of about 88% of African Americans would support him in the matchup against Purdue, compared with 79% for Tomlinson and 76% for Amico. So not, not hugely different numbers, but certainly shows that Ossoff has a little bit of an edge, at least in this poll, among black voters in a matchup with, with Purdue. What this poll didn't include was you know, what I wished to include, which was a, a roundup of June 9th's actual race. You know, who yeah. who does better in, a, in the actual June 9th primary, Ossoff, Amico, Tomlinson, or any other candidate? Because there's four other candidates running, too. But yeah. um, they didn't do that one. Yeah. Um, Adam, we're very familiar, of course, with Ossoff here in Metro Atlanta because he ran in that 6th district, the most highly profiled race in the country uh, back a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm curious what his impact is down in the southeastern coast. I mean, he, he's not 
well-known down there, I don't think. Maybe he's gained a, a reputation, but uh, you're, you're somewhat closer to Teresa Tomlinson down your way. Tell us about that. Yeah, you're reading my mind. Is that I hear a lot of things and read a lot of things about John Ossoff and how high-profile he is, and I'm sure that's the case in, in metro Atlanta, but I, I got to say, at least in, in coastal Georgia, John Ossoff is a complete unknown. And he hasn't spent a whole lot of time down here prior to prior to the coronavirus pretty much shutting everything down. Teresa Tomlinson is is known in in political circles. I think uh, she did make uh, the rounds here prior to prior to the pandemic and being the mayor of a smaller Georgia city. I think that carries a lot of a lot of weight here in Savannah. But it's really interesting with that race is, and I'm sure Greg probably gets. Some of the same, same things. I get emails saying, "Why are we not talking about the Leffler, Collins, Warnock uh, primaries <laughs> that are time. coming up in June?" And, you know, and you have to tell people, "Listen, I know that that race is kind of sucking all the energy out of the room, but that race isn't even on the ballot till November." And you know, this June 9th thing, I, I don't envy any of those candidates in terms of trying to get their message out and trying to connect with voters. And from that standpoint, I almost have to think that Ossoff has a big advantage just because he is well-known in the most populous part of the state. So, um, it, 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 Patricia, is it your sense that uh, within, in, in a number of polls, um, none of which have been conducted by the, you know, uh, any of the local news organizations recently, uh, it, it does seem that Tomlinson and Ossoff are are more competitive in this than Amico, and I'm not quite sure why that might be the case, although it may not even be fair to say that, given that we have had so little polling. What what do you think? Yeah, I think the lack of polling just, uh, I think we're all a little bit in the dark in terms of what voters actually know and what voters are likely to do in the primary. Um, It's just been such a tough environment for these candidates to get, literally, to get out, to get their name out there. Um, So I think that gives uh, John Ossoff an enormous advantage in the metro area because he is well-known. Tomlinson may have some growth potential, but we're running out of time here. I mean, just very, (laughs) basically a few days left until this is happening. Um, So it seems to be uh, a function of name ID, maybe uh, what ends up being John Ossoff's um, biggest uh, biggest advantage going into this. Um, and I think that having the endorsement of John Lewis, you just cannot underplay how important that could be in, in important segments of the community really? as well. Greg Bluestein, I know there's a story yeah. you've been mm-hmm. wanting to talk about. Do you want me to tell you what it is, or do you, do you, do you want to just get... Oh, t- <laughs> tell, tell me what it is. It's, it's Kelly Leff- It's Kelly Leffler. There is a lot of speculation that Kelly Leffler is reading the tea leaves. You know, Patricia said it in her own way a little while ago. You know, this is not bad news for most candidates, but Kelly Leffler wakes up to uh, pretty bad news about this poll. There's a lot of speculation that Kelly Leffler is going to decide this race isn't for her and she's going to drop out. And and it's coming. We had Lynn Westmoreland, former third district Republican congressman, uh, say that it's time for a kitchen table meeting among Republicans to decide what to do about Leffler. But you uh, think that's just 
foolish talk for one big reason. Tell us about it. <clears throat> well, a couple of a couple of big reasons, but the biggest well, there's actually four million reasons in that she just spent four million bucks on a, <laughs> on a, a, a suite of, of ads. It's not exactly something you'd be doing if you're about to drop out. Um, she also has been uh, unveiling sort of a, a harder edge, sharper approach to, to Doug Collins. She bought up domain names that, that had his name in it, like Doug Collins for Senate, and launched you know micro websites that that attacked Doug Collins' um, uh, uh, record on those on those websites. So she's she's definitely uh, taking a more assertive, uh, aggressive approach in her campaign against against Doug Collins, who, someone who she largely ignored the first few weeks of. Of, of this year of this race, um, as her poll numbers take take a hit, um, a pro Brian Kemp pack uh, also released a, an internal poll showing that she was closer to Doug Collins. But basically, it was a, a neck and neck race. So at least they have that poll to counter all these other polls. But look, it's it's kind of like four to one right now. <laughs> I think also I would just add, I don't know how in the world Kelly Loeffler could bow out of this race after Brian Kemp has invested so much in her um, in terms of his own political capital. I mean, he bet the house that Kelly Loeffler um, would be in this race, do well in this race. Um, and things change a lot in a day in politics, it seems like, um, let alone uh, let alone the months that she has left to go. But if I don't see how you can tell the governor, oh, thank you so much. I'm actually going to let your rival uh, come in and have this seat uh, that was yours to a point in the short term. So I think uh, she would have a very hard time uh, if Kemp did not endorse the idea ahead of time. All right. Um, It's going to be interesting to watch how this race unfolds. Um, Patricia, as long as you've got the ball, uh, Nabila Islam, that 7th District Democratic Congressional race is really an interesting race, I think. We haven't had much time to talk about it because of all the other news we've been discussing, but June 9th is right ahead of us, so we got to start turning to talking about some of these congressional races. Um, Nabila Islam just received the endorsement of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in that race. Um, is that... How do you imagine uh, AOC plays to voters in the 7th Congressional District? Nationally, it's kind of a big deal, I think, uh, because of her reputation as a national figure. But is she a little too far to the left for 7th District voters over there? Uh, I would say yes. Um, It's very helpful for Nabil Islam in terms of fundraising in this short period of time that they have left. It might pump up uh, also the, the amount of free uh, media that she'll get out of this, but um, AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York 14, um, she—that's a district that Hillary Clinton won by 77 percent. She is just built for that district, and she won in a primary, um, had no Republican opposition, and a Republican would have no chance there. I think in the seventh, voters there have to know um, the the district is just built differently. And any Democrat who wins in June is going to have to um, really be able to close the deal in November as well. Oh, um, Greg, that's I said it was an interesting race, that Democratic race up there. Uh, You've got some strong women candidates up there. Uh, You know, Carolyn Bordeaux, who came very close to winning the seat outright two years ago. Uh, Among them, Brenda Lopez is working hard as she wants to become the first uh, Latina 
uh, member of Georgia's congressional delegation. Uh, it's it's a really interesting matchup. Yeah, and don't forget State Senator Zara Karnchak. Um And look, it looks like it oh was, yeah, it, it Karnchak. Yeah, it looks like it would go to a runoff, but no one, no one, no one can predict what turnout will look like with this. You, you know, you'll have a surge of, of absentee ballots, and but we don't know what, how big the surge will be, or who will vote. This is clearly an attempt um, by by Nabil Islam to try to get younger voters who typically don't pay much attention or don't vote at as high rates in these primaries to turn out because they're excited about her progressive policies. And she has gone to the left of those more center left other candidates in that primary. Um, so uh, it'll, we'll see if, if this gamble pays off, but certainly she's running an unapologetically progressive campaign right now. Adam, what's going on with Buddy Carter down your way? Oh, it's gotten kind of quiet since the whole deal about the property involving the spaceport. Uh, we've been getting some some letters and some comments on both sides talking about about that situation, but for the most part, he's he's stayed quiet about it, and it's it's kind of faded away. And um, as we get closer and closer to the election, his primary opponent is trying to make an issue of it, but at least to this point, it's it's not gaining traction as everybody seems to be fascinated by coronavirus and Ahmed Arbery and other things in these in this neck of the woods. Yeah, we go. Just just uh, to point out to listeners who may not have heard it the last time you were on, uh, Buddy Carter, your paper uh, revealed that he had bought some land uh, with some proximity to the spaceport that he's been promoting for a long time. He bought the land a couple of years before the spaceport proposal uh, came along. Nevertheless, there have been some concerns about a conflict of possible conflict of interest there. Hey, one last. We're running out of time rapidly, but Patricia... You had a column in USA Today the other day. We'll post it on social media. You're giving Stacey Abrams great credit for being a groundbreaker, but you don't think she's the best choice for the vice presidential slot. Well, I think that Joe Biden um, needs somebody, and he has said this, who is ready to do the job on day one. And when I say the job, it's the job of the presidency, not the vice presidency. And so I think that... Um, Abrams has so much going for her and probably more even than uh, national pundits even know in terms of what she's achieved in this state. Um, but in terms of giving voters the signal that this ticket uh, in uh, Joe Biden's case, if anything were to happen to him on the second day in office, that person needs to be ready to run the federal government. Um, and I think that that is where she's coming up short for some voters. And there's no question that Biden's age contributes to the concern you're talking about. Exactly. I think that he needs a partner in governing um, because he is 77 years old and uh, needs to give people confidence that uh, his uh, first term, he will have an an able number two who really is able to to step in and do the job in case anything happened to as could with any 77 year old. All right. Patricia Murphy, Adam Van Brimmer, Greg Bluestein, thanks for an awfully good show today. We are really happy to have you with us. Um, We're going to change pace tomorrow and do something a little bit different. We're going to have Dr. Ray Hotwicky back. He's a psychiatrist, chief medical officer at Skyland Trail, and we're going to talk about grief and mourning 
in the time of the coronavirus. And, and I'm going to share with you a personal story about what my family has been going through with the loss of one of the most important members of our family. And I want to hear about your experiences as well. See you all tomorrow.